0: Welcome to the PTUB Pod, an educational podcast created by paediatric trainees in the Southwest, featuring reviews of journal articles and interviews with authors and specialists. Please note, these are our own opinions and do not substitute professional medical advice. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Professor Ramanan. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Kawasaki disease. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to join your podcast.
0: Thank you. And just to um, introduce yourself to our listeners, can you tell me a little bit about your current role and how you came to get into rheumatology and Kawasaki disease?
1: Thank you. So I'm a paediatric rheumatologist based at the Bristol Royal Hospital for Children. I also have a professor of paediatric rheumatology at the University of Bristol. I'm primarily a clinician, but also involved in doing trials. In terms of my training, uh, like most of us, I started training in pediatrics, general pediatrics. And then when I was doing my training jobs at Great Ormond Street, I got exposed to a wide variety of specialties. And the couple which caught my eye really were immunology, infectious diseases, rheumatology and nephrology. So I honed in on rheumatology, which was uh, not that recognized a speciality back in the late 90s. And I went and did my fellowship in the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto for two years after doing some training in the UK. At the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, the Kawasaki patients are all treated only after the rheumatology fellows seen them. So that gave me a huge interest as well as experience in the management of Kawasaki along with the pediatricians there. And I carried that interest back when I've been in the UK. I'm so pleased you're doing a podcast on Kawasaki because... It's not a problem as was thought a couple of decades ago of the developed nations or the Western world. It's as much of an issue or probably the commonest cause of acquired heart disease increasingly in low and middle income countries as well. Now that streptococcal uh, infections and Mm. rheumatic fever is fast disappearing. And better recognition uh, is leading to recognition of Kawasaki all around the world.
0: Absolutely. So today we're going to focus on a paper from Archives in Disease in Childhood. It came out a couple of months ago, and it's titled Infliximab for Intensification of Primary Therapy for Patients with Kawasaki Disease and Coronary Artery Aneurysms at Diagnosis. And the paper was written by Miata et al. and published online first in May 2023. So before we get into the details of the paper... Just wanted to talk a little bit about Kawasaki in general. So I think we're all familiar with typical Kawasaki. So five days plus of fever, conjunctival erythema, involvement of the extremities, usually in kind of swelling of the palms and and sores of the feet, uh, and later on desquamation. A rash, which can be, uh, well, it's polymorphous, but specifically non vesicular And erythema of the oropharynx of the lips, and cervical lymphadenopathy, usually with a lymph node greater than one and a half centimetres. And when I was doing my reading, I came across that uh, perineal accentuation of the rash is also quite a prominent feature, which I hadn't heard before. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the definitions of incomplete and atypical Kawasaki, because I think they're misused.
1: Yeah, no, you gave a very good summary of what is classic Kawasaki. And of course, here we are still struggling with some of the semantics. So in The way I define incomplete is when someone doesn't meet the features, the five days of fever and four of the five criteria, but yet Kawasaki is high in the differential diagnosis and you want to treat, you call those patients incomplete. Mm -hmm. Atypical is when they're incomplete, you've done an echo and the echo shows changes in the coronary arteries, in which case it's a much more robust and easier diagnosis to make. Oftentimes, incomplete and atypical are interchangeably used, but confusingly so. So when we say incomplete, we mean the child does not fulfill the criteria for classic Kawasaki, but there's a high index of suspicion, and other diagnoses have been considered and not thought appropriate, or considered and treated, and the child is still unwell. Atypical is, of course, when you have the coronary artery lesions, which case the treatment becomes much more straightforward, or the decision to treat becomes more easy
0: and more important. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the diagnostic dilemma. So there is huge amounts of overlap between yeah. other diseases and uh, Kawasaki disease, which is one of the things that make clinicians stumble at treating early, isn't it? Though we see it a lot with group A strep and adenovirus seems to cause people a lot of problems with that prolonged fever and can have multiple of the other signs of Kawasaki disease. And we in the UK seem to have a particular problem with diagnosing Kawasaki disease or certainly starting to treat Kawasaki disease early. Is that right?
1: Well, that's what the data suggests. So the last British paediatric surveillance unit study that was done, which is a very uniquely British thing where you look at every paediatrician reporting on Kawasaki. And that was done over a period of two years. And the Incidence of coronary artery aneurysms is much, much higher than what you'd expect for Western uh, nations. And it might be twofold. It might be that there is delayed diagnosis or a delay in diagnosis, but more importantly, a delay in instituting the treatment, which we now have, such as immunoglobulin, and other aspects of treatment, which we will discuss. This does not seem so much of an issue in North America, at least from the literature, and part of the reason as someone who trained in North America and has worked in the UK extensively is in order to capture all the Kawasaki's, or for, this is true for any diagnosis, you would have to over-diagnose or consider the diagnosis in much more patient population mm. than those who actually have it. And of course that presents a challenge in itself because IVIG is expensive, it's in short supply. And so We're always treading this fine balance between diagnosing Kawasaki appropriately, treating them at the appropriate stage, whilst not dishing out IVIG to all and sundry.
0: Yeah, and we have yet to find that balance, haven't we? I think Americans are very good at throwing the book at things, whereas we're a bit more cautious, but we're being too cautious by the sounds of it. That's
1: absolutely right. And I think a lot of this is probably historical as well. Uh, Some of the misconceptions in the diagnosis, which I've seen when I go on ward rounds, is this excessive reliance on a child being irritable. So Mm. the older generation of pediatricians believe that every child with Kawasaki must be intensely irritable. And while that is true in a great majority of cases, it doesn't have to be the case. Another misconception, which again exists, is in the original IVIG randomized control trials, those who presented with more than 10 days of fever were excluded. Okay. And it was done so because the longer you have the fever, the higher the risk of coronary aneurysm. Mm-hmm. So rightly, they excluded those with prolonged fever because they were going to skew the populations unless mm-hmm. you stratified them. For some reason, people assumed that if you had fever for more than 10 days, it's not worth treating when it's That's actually right. the opposite. <laughs> yeah. That is less so the case, but till a few years ago, you'd occasionally hear some junior doctors say, Oh, this child's had fever for more than 10 days, should we treat? And you want to emphasize all the more reason to, because we know the longer you have the fever, the greater is the risk of inflammation yeah. and therefore the coronary damage.
0: The statistics I heard was that worldwide, the average incidence of coronary artery aneurysms in Kawasaki disease or oh, start saying CAA <laughs> for short, is approximately 5%, whereas certainly in the paper that I saw from the n- late 90s, in the UK we had 19%. Is that still the rough percentage, or have we started to improve a little bit?
1: So the 5% mainly comes from North American literature and the large randomized controlled trials. And you're right, it's close to 15%, 16 17% here, and that was the last BPSU study. So it clearly shows we have a way to go in early recognition of Kawasaki and appropriate initiation of IVIG.
0: And if you had clinical um, uncertainty, let's say you were 50-50 with group A struck Kawasaki disease, personally, would you err on the side of giving IVIG if you'd met the sort of four or five days of fever? Or is it much more complex than that?
1: <laughs> it certainly is much more complex than that. But most of your listeners will want clarity of the answers, and I think if you suspect group A strep, you've given appropriate antibiotics, and in 24 hours, 36 hours, or 48 hours, you're not having the requisite response, and the child is in the right age group and fulfills the criteria, then IVIG must be considered. The key is not so much of when you give IVIG. In most of these cases where there's a delay in diagnosis and unfortunate outcomes, the diagnosis hasn't been considered. Mm. or has been considered but not given appropriate attention to Mm -hmm. when IVIG should be instituted. There are certain populations within the age of six months to five years, which is the key Kawasaki age group, where the index of uh, suspicion and the threshold for treating is much lower. And that is those between six months to one year, Mm. and even more so for those under six months. Mm. And I'm sure we'll come back to this. But we know from data from multiple countries, incomplete Kawasaki is much more common in those under six months and in those under one year. We also know that the risk of coronary artery aneurysms is highest in this age group, in those under one. So in that age group, I think I would have a very low threshold for giving IVIG.
0: Yeah. And well, it is a later point, but actually it's a good time to discuss it. There have been a few different risk models proposed, some by the Japanese cohort, although the risk models are of trying to predict the resistance to treatment rather than high risk for coronary artery aneurysms. But this this paper referenced a previous paper from a a North American cohort who suggested uh, risk stratifying for the North American population. And they said the higher risk groups were those under six months, like you said, those of Asian descent. Those with a CRP of greater than 13 at baseline and a baseline Z score um, of greater than two for either the LAD or RCA. Z score scored two and the others scored three. So you're low risk if you're a zero to one, moderate risk if you had a score of two and high risk if it was three or greater. And they showed anywhere between 16 to 40 times higher rates of CAA in those groups, which is uh, quite significant. An important group to consider.
1: Absolutely right. And I think, again, if you are a general pediatrician working in a small unit and and you don't have immediate access to these resources, the key points to remember are age under one, male gender, a high CRP, much higher than what you'd expect, low platelet count. Interestingly, people don't realize this. A low platelet count is also a poor prognostic factor. Low sodium. So if you see any of these, then you must be much more aware that these are the patient populations which are at greatest risk of coronary aneurysms. One of the problems with the prognostic criteria is most of them are validated in Japanese populations. Mm. We are part of an exercise uh, across Florence, India, and Bristol, so we're doing a three-centre comparison of these prognostic criteria. Uh, And of course, we'll have to wait and see what that shows, but I think the age is one which most of us can pick up. A high CRP, I I wouldn't put any absolute values, but the higher the CRP, the greater the worry should be. If you, of course, at baseline, have a echo which shows changes, then the threshold is different. But in lots of small units, it may not be possible to get an echo within the first 24, 48 hours that easily. But the age is something people should bear in mind. CRP is something they should bear in mind. Platelet count, particularly low platelet count, and a low sodium are all poor prognostic factors.
0: And that platelet count, I think people remember it's high platelets, but that's in the second week, not in the presentation usually. Exactly. So it's low and then high. Uh, And I think I saw a statistic where 39% of less than one-year-olds had um, coronary artery disease, despite showing fewer symptoms at diagnosis.
1: That's true. And if you look at retrospective series, which is what most of these are, it's anything from 30% or has as 70%. And wow. the younger the child, particularly in the under six months, high likelihood of being incomplete and a high likelihood of having coronary artery aneurysms. Of course, most of the children who are four five months old, who have five days of fever, would appropriately be worked up for a full septic screen, yeah. would have had a course of antibiotics. Yeah. But if after five, six days, they are still febrile, then IVIG and the diagnosis of Kawasaki should be considered which often isn't because people think Kawasaki happens only after the age of six months. That mm. isn't true. When we say it's six months to five years, we say that 80% of the patient population falls in that. But you can have Kawasaki as an eight-year-old, mm. you can have Kawasaki as an eight-week-old.
0: An important point to remember. Yeah. And so then briefly touching on the current treatment, so IVIG is our standard alongside high although I have heard uh, mixed opinions about the aspirin since working in this um, specialty, there isn't a lot of supporting evidence for aspirin. Is that right?
1: That's right. And I think the therapeutic approaches to Kawasaki has to be um, contextualized in where the trial data came from. So the first trials were of IVIG. The first trial was of IVIG given over five days, with aspirin being the standard of care. The next trial was aspirin plus IVIG for five days versus aspirin plus IVIG over two days. Mm -hmm. And then the latest trial, or the last one which we use currently, is IVIG given as a single infusion over 12 to 16 hours plus aspirin. Increasingly, we believe the role of aspirin in high doses is not what makes the difference. And it's really the antiplatelet dose of aspirin, five per kilo. It's going to be very hard to get conclusive evidence for this because there is going to be no trial where the standard Mm. of care doesn't include. But there's enough um, experimental data, meta-analysis, which are all suggesting. So where I would lie today is if the child where we suspect Kawasaki does not have abnormal liver function, I would give 30 milligrams per kilogram when they're febrile and five per kilo once the fever settles. But if they have abnormal liver function, then it's perfectly appropriate to just go straight for five per kilo or use an aproxime as an alternative to um, aspirin.
0: And do you mean just mildly deranged? Because a lot of them have slightly deranged ALTs. I
1: I think if it's at least two times above the upper limit of normal, it would be appropriate to then uh, reduce the dose of aspirin significantly or just give an antiplatelet dose. It's clear that the immunomodulatory effects of IVIG is what's contributing to the reduction in coronary artery aneurysms, and that's been shown in multiple trials and meta-analysis. So excessive emphasis on aspirin is distracting us from what Mm. we really need to focus on, which is timely administration of IVIG.
0: And from what I've seen, the, the incidence of coronary artery aneurysms is much higher in those that are given IVIG later in the course of 10 days. Versus around seven days.
1: That's right. The sooner you give the IVIG, the greater the chance of reducing the risk of coronary artery aneurysms. So anything after five days, every day that you have prolonged inflammation, it's intuitive that the risk of coronary artery aneurysms will be increased.
0: But again, to emphasize that that doesn't mean that after 10 days you don't give IVIG if there's fever.
1: Absolutely. The longer the patient has fever, the higher the risk. So if someone comes to you for whatever set of circumstances, with 15 days of fever and a full set of Kawasaki criteria, it's all the more important to initiate treatment with IVIG and adjunctive medications as well. Mm -hmm. I think the treatment of Kawasaki is very interesting in terms of what adjunctive treatments we've come and A lot of it is not necessarily based on where the laboratory evidence is, a lot's based on individual acceptance or comfort level with different medications. And before we go to the anti-TNF therapies, I want to touch on steroids, and I want to touch on the impact of IVIG cost in the low- and middle-income countries. So IVIG, 2 grams per kilogram, is an expensive drug. Mm. In the Western world, it's in short supply. In other parts of the world, where most of the care is paid out of pocket, 2 grams per kilogram if the child's 20 kilos is a significant hole in the The finances of most families. And the paradox here, which has never been resolved, is Kawasaki is a large vessel vasculitis. For all other large, medium, and small vessel vasculitis, the standard of care medication is steroids. So why then are we not using steroids? So Again, if you go back in time, in the 70s and 80s, there was some data based on retrospective analysis, which suggested that steroids might potentially be harmful in Kawasaki. Nobody could explain why that was. The quality of data was poor. And then in the early 90s, there was a randomized control trial of IVIG plus aspirin plus three doses of IV-Methylprednisolone versus IVIG plus aspirin, which is a standard care. This trial did not show any benefit for IV-Methylprednisolone, but the flaw in this study was it took all Kawasaki patients in a North American setting where already, as we have discussed, the incidence of coronary artery aneurysms is 5%. Mm. And this sample size didn't demonstrate that. And then there was this lovely race study done by the Japanese, where they showed that if you take the patients using Japanese prognostic criteria of who are at high risk of developing coronary artery aneurysms, and then randomize those patients to getting steroids plus IVIG versus just IVIG, there was a dramatic reduction in coronary artery aneurysms with steroids. And I raised the issue of steroids first because it's much more accessible yeah. and much more affordable. So in high-risk patients, particularly in the low- and middle-income countries, steroids as an adjunctive therapy should be considered, particularly in those who either have large coronary aneurysms at presentation or are presenting with several days of fever and very high CRPs, or in those who have failed IVIG and are still febrile.
0: In PIMS-TS, we started using methylpred as one of the three options in the research. Did that show anything? Because there was a lot of overlap between PIMS-TS and Kawasaki disease. Can we extrapolate from that research?
1: Yes and no. So as one of the rheumatologists in the Paediatric Recovery Steering Committee, or the only rheumatologist, I could clearly sense at the start, the infectious diseases community had its natural angst against steroids, which it overcame with passage of time. And the pims data is a bit muddy because of the panic and the yeah. reactions around COVID. But it's clearly demonstrating a trend from both the North American ret- retrospective data, the Swiss recovery protocol data, and the UK pediatric recovery um, data. That IV methylpred probably has a benefit over IVIG, apart from the issues of fluid administration with IVIG. But in some ways, PIMSTS uh, was based on Kawasaki therapeutic guidance, and mm-hmm. that's where its strength and weakness was. The issue of steroids, to me, is still very pertinent. I think it is a very good adjunctive treatment. Its cost and its easy availability makes it probably the first-choice, second-line agent after IVIG in most settings. But if we come to other adjunctive agents which are being used, why anti-TNF? Some laboratory data, mouse models of Kawasaki suggest that, along with other inflammatory cytokines, TNF is elevated. We chose TNF because by then in the 90s, TNF had become standard of care for adults with rheumatoid arthritis and children with inflammatory arthritis. So there was a lot of comfort with TNF in terms of ease of administration, Mm. people's acceptability of the treatment. So the comfort level of anti-TNF therapies because of its use in adult and pediatric inflammatory arthritis meant it was the go-to drug for uh, the rheumatologists and other pediatricians who were already comfortable with this. So, amongst the different anti-TNFs, you have infliximab, which is a chimeric monoclonal antibody to TNF. Etanacept is a soluble fusion protein, so it's a decoy receptor for the TNF receptor. Infliximab makes the obvious choice because it's a single infusion, it's given intravenously, and you will have rapid onset of action. Anakinra, which we don't need to touch on in great detail, is an IL-1 blocker which is used in lots of auto-inflammatory conditions.
0: And so then moving on to today's paper, it was a retrospective observational study of patients in California, and they had a group of 168 children. This was across a time period of 1989 to 2004. So naturally, there are a couple of treatment protocol changes. And just to emphasize, the infliximab was given to children who already had coronary artery aneurysms at diagnosis, so not every patient with KD. They described the protocol changes, so from 1989 to 2004, IVIG and aspirin was the, the main treatment. Then from 2004 to 2014, those patients with CAA at diagnosis were started on 5 milligrams per kilogram of infliximab, predominantly after IVIG, but they had a trial within that time frame where a small subset received the infliximab before the IVIG. From 2014 onwards, following some pharmacokinetic data, they increased their standard dose of infliximab to 10 milligrams per kilogram. And just to highlight the importance of the timing of infliximab, if you are going to give it, uh, then we should definitely give it after the IVIG, as they found that the clearance is greatly increased if you give it before the IVIG.
1: Thank you very much. That's a very good summary of this paper. And and before I talk about this paper in particular, a disclosure, I have written an accompanying editorial with my colleagues, Anne Sage, um, who's a fellow with us, and Ankur Jindal, who's a pediatric rheumatologist in Chandigarh in India. So I think most of what we discuss is as you articulate. The key caveats of this paper is it is retrospective. It is a single-center cohort. They've outlined, as you rightly put, what they did in three different phases in their unit. I still think it's valuable. What this unit, which has got a long track record of working in Kawasaki, led by Jane Burns and now Adriana Tremoule, have done is instituted a protocol which they have followed. So even though it's retrospective, I think it adds value that it's a single center cohort. And they worked to their protocol in 10-year aliquots of time. Of course, the dose of infliximab they use is much higher than what most of the others would use. There's a good pharmacokinetic rationale that if you give IVIG and then follow it on with infliximab, the clearance of infliximab is far greater and the serum concentrations of what you want to achieve is not what you get Mm -hmm. with 5 milligrams per kilogram. So the key issue here is a higher dose of infliximab. It's something for us to think about, but I'm not sure, based on this manuscript alone, we would all jump to going to 10 milligrams per kilogram. But this manuscript gives us some food for thought on whether infliximab is a good adjunctive agent, and if we use infliximab, what that dose should be.
0: Because this, I think, the the key limitation in this paper was that those receiving ten milligrams per kilogram was such a small number, Uh, so it was eighteen out of the hundred and sixty-eight. So we've got some promising results, which we'll come to in a second, but it's really difficult to draw solid conclusions from it. So the primary outcome that they looked at was um, coronary artery aneurysm regression to less than two within two months, and. The results, so as we mentioned, they're promising. Um, so they did find a significant reduction in the Z-score from the baseline in the 10 milligram per kilogram of inflixiumab group. Actually, they found a reduction in all treatments. So with IVIG alone, there was a 52% reduction in the Z-score, with the 5 milligrams per kilogram of infliximab, a 62% reduction, and then with the 10 milligram per kilogram, 83% reduction. So really promising data.
1: Absolutely, and it's a single center study. Um, The disappointing bit for me was that the IVIG versus IVIG plus infliximab 5 milligrams wasn't statistically significant. And this study, with the small numbers that had the 10 per kilo, which as you say is 18, shows statistically significant values only for the 10 per kilo of infliximab. Now, while that is reassuring that infliximab in some dosage works, infliximab is not a cheap drug. Mm. And if you're going to give twice the amount of infliximab, again, in low and middle income countries, it would mean twice the cost. That said, infliximab is still a cheaper drug than the second dose of IVIG.
0: Out of interest, what is the cost of infliximab versus IVIG?
1: So for a 10 kilo child, if one was to give 10 milligrams per kilogram of infliximab, compared to a second dose of 2 grams per kilogram of IVIG, infliximab is half the cost of IVIG.
0: So really significant. So, I mean, it's a small study. Can we draw any real conclusions from this? Would this data change your management currently of refractory Kawasaki disease patients or those with coronary artery aneurysms on presentation?
1: This data would help me understand that infliximab is a valuable adjunct, but more importantly, this data helps me understand that if I'm going to use infliximab, I'm better off giving 10 per kilo rather than five per kilo. In terms of how I will manage somebody with Kawasaki who had presentation as coronary artery aneurysms or who has had a dose of IVIG and is still febrile, then my first adjunctive agent would still be steroids. But if for some reason, either steroids is contraindicated or um, it's not appropriate because there's a huge risks associated with sepsis in any particular patient, then I would consider infliximab. But in my own mind, the hierarchy would be IVIG followed by steroids with infliximab as my second choice agent after steroids. I think there's a need for large, well-conducted studies. Absolutely. So far we only look at coronary artery aneurysm size, but increasingly the Japanese are recognizing that children who recover from Kawasaki may be at risk of premature atherosclerosis because of abnormal endothelial flow in their 30s and 40s.
0: So some really important research to come then. Thank you so much for talking about the paper. We always like to finish with something a little bit lighter. And I wonder if you've read anything recently that you particularly enjoyed or watched any of the films recently that you've loved, or if you've got a particular favourite.
1: So I'm a big football fan. So the Christmas time is full of games, which I've been watching eagerly, and my team Arsenal is going to play this evening at (laughs) 8.15. So that's the biggest stress of my life. Um, Other than that, I don't think I can mention anything more interesting. (laughs) That's
0: fine. And I have noticed working with you that you have an incredible ability to focus, really efficient, and you manage to get a lot done whilst also having an absolute wealth of knowledge. I wonder if you have any advice for the trainee? It
1: was very kind of you to say so. I think there's a lot I can do better. But if I was to say a couple of things, one would be the importance of trainees to read widely. And an important piece of advice that was given to me is to read the key journals, Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine, every week. And I read every article that comes in it, just the abstract, because if it's not in paediatrics, it still may have some personal relevance to me in my own journey through life and medicine. I think we are physicians first and pediatricians second. And if you come from countries such as I do, India, People always look at you as a doctor. They don't see you exclusively as a pediatrician. It's very true. <laughs> so I think having knowledge about everything to a small extent is helpful. And trainees always tell me, I can't read everything. There's so much to read. Practice-changing papers almost always get published in two journals. It's either the Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine. It's not the question you asked me about how I'm effective, but it's one of the answers. So, I make time to read these two. As someone who's published in this, I know that the editors of these journals take extraordinary care in how the abstract is structured. So, for most of us, for most topics, all we need to do is read the 250 word abstract. And that tells us everything we need to know. As for how I manage to be efficient, I try and compartmentalize my things, I try and come into work with a clear vision of what I'm going to do. When I'm at work, I try and be as focused as I can be. And and I ensure that when I go home, I have a healthy sporting and social activities planned because I think working all the time will also lead you to be ineffective.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Professor Ramanan. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we can invite you back on the podcast at a future date.
1: Thank you very much.